0: A few weeks ago, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler, they wanted to continue production. They didn't want to stop COVID-19 or no COVID-19. Well, the workers had other ideas. A number of wildcat strikes happened, and eventually those companies had to shut their production down. You also saw wildcat strikes of people who worked in Amazon warehouses in Queens, New York, Staten Island, New York, Chicago, strike action at at least one McDonald's store, strikes in the gig economy, like Instacart. So one thing we can observe is that once the working class gets in the habit of going on strike, it's hard to stop. And that's something the bosses absolutely fear. America will never be a socialist country. country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a worker's government on a socialist program. Hello comrades and friends, brothers and sisters. Welcome to the socialistrevolution.org podcast. I'm Tom Trache. Tonight, we're going to discuss how workers are fighting back in the class war against capitalism in the midst of COVID-19 and the present economic crisis. Now look, from the start, workers have faced threats to their health and safety, particularly in this COVID-19 crisis, but the bosses don't care. They just want their profit. And let's be clear at why the capitalists create jobs under capitalism. Basically, capitalists make money off workers. That's the whole purpose uh, uh, for capitalism to create jobs for people is because they can make money off them. They can exploit them. Human labor plus natural resources can produce goods and services. And in capitalism, these goods and services are sold as commodities. Now, labor produces more value than it gets back in wages and benefits. The capitalists keep the surplus value, The surplus value is divided into rent, interest, and profit. And if they can't make money any longer on any of these workers, these workers are either laid off or fired, as we saw in the last three weeks, with 16.7 million people joining the ranks of the unemployed. So the basis of class struggle under capitalism is that the capitalist wants more surplus value and this takes place in the context of the capitalist market. So what's in the interests of the bosses? What's in the interest of the bosses is lower wages, lower benefits, faster work by the employees, and even unsafe conditions. Because all of those things mean higher profits for the boss. It, he's not at the least concerned of what's in the interests of his employees. Now, we can take a look at uh, an example, for example, um, the... Uh, meat processing factories like poultry, for example. If you take a look at those poultry factories that process all that chicken, you have one worker standing right next to the other worker and they want to run that line as quickly as possible because that kind of situation means more profit for the bosses, but it's also very unsafe in the context of COVID-19 to have one person right next to the other. So for the point of view of safety, why not run the line slower? Why not space out the workers so that they have more than six feet in between them? That would be uh, uh, good from the point of view of the safety of the workers. But it's not good in terms of the profit of the capitalists. So the capitalists continue to do things the way they want to do to get their profits. And as a result, you're seeing workers in a lot of these poultry factories are coming down with COVID-19, and some of them have already died. This is the the antagonistic relationship that's built in capitalism. the struggle between the working class and the capitalist class, the class struggle, which is built into the system and which we must understand if we are to change things for the better in this world. Now, the only way to solve this problem is that workers have to take the situation into their own hands. And as a result, we're seeing reports of all sorts of wildcat strikes, wildcat strikes in Italy, in Spain, in Austria, in France and Portugal. And guess what? Even in the United States, which I'll get to in a minute. But first of all, when you hear that term wildcat strike, what is a wildcat strike? A wildcat strike is a situation when against uh, the, the authority and against the approval of the union leadership, the workers know that something must be done. They must take action. And the main power the workers have to take action is to withhold their labor. So in a wildcat strike, it's not an authorized strike. It's not a sanction by the union leadership, but the workers know it needs to be done. They have to go on strike and they take action um, in, in spite of and, some, and many times opposed to the policies of the union leadership. Now, as I was explaining, we've seen examples of wildcat strikes in a lot of different countries. And I just want to mention also in Italy, the international Marxist tendency comrades have started a campaign in Italy linked with some of these wildcat job actions. Um, They have a a campaign called Workers Are Not Cannon Fodder. Workers Are Not Expendable. And they are trying to address a broader layer of the working class in Italy, um, address them with a crisis and a strategy on how to deal with the situation that's uh, facing the Italian working class. And this is having an impact there. And we would ask, Um, Those of you who are watching this podcast or listening to this podcast, if you'd like to support that campaign, please go to marxist.com and you can add your name to that list. We've already got a number of people from the United States on that list supporting that campaign. But as I was explaining, in addition to what's going on in Italy and in Europe, even here in the United States, you have wildcat strikes. A few weeks ago, General Motors, Ford, Chrysler... They wanted to continue production. They didn't want to stop COVID-19 or no COVID-19, just keep those cars uh, being churned out on the factory line. Well, the workers had other ideas. A number of wildcat strikes happened in all three of the big three uh, uh, automakers. And eventually, those companies had to shut their production down. It was also interesting. It had an effect on Honda, which is a non-union auto uh, company, but they saw the writing on the wall. They were afraid of their workers uh, uh, taking similar action, and they also shut down their production. But not only among auto workers, you've also seen, for example, other sections of the working class step up and fight uh, uh, to to take action to defend themselves in the midst of COVID-19. For example, in Pittsburgh, Um, One of the sanitation workers came down with COVID-19, and all of the sanitation workers then decided that if they didn't get certain safety measures applied immediately, they would refuse to work. You also saw wildcat strikes of, of people, for example, who worked for pizza delivery places, people who worked in Amazon warehouses in Queens, New York, Staten Island, New York, Chicago. There have been some job actions, limited job actions. There's been a um, uh, um, strike action at at least one McDonald's store that I've heard of. And in the state of Massachusetts, under the pressure of the rank and file, the Carpenters Union, as of this past Monday, April 6th, basically told all its members no longer uh, to, to no longer report to work, which is basically a statewide strike of carpenters in Massachusetts because of the unsafe conditions. In addition to seeing these strikes among the organized workers, and unorganized workers, you've even seen strikes in the gig economy, like Instacart, which had a strike as well. And, you know, that gig economy, it's a bit of a misnomer because when we talk about the gig economy, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, the the most exploited, the most oppressed uh, section of the workers in the capitalist economy. It's not really a separate economy. It's part of capitalism. Also, I'd like to share with you um, the impact uh, one IMT member had uh, who works in the northeast of the United States. He works in a post office, and he had some support among his uh, co-workers. And um, what had happened was the, uh, the union uh, that he was involved in had created some sort of a national agreement where there would be staggered starting times for mail delivery uh, personnel, but it wasn't being implemented in his office. So he, along with the support of some of his co-workers, was able to get that implemented, to actually implement a staggered, Uh, a beginning, uh, a a staggered time in terms of beginning shifts in the office. So not all the postal workers are in one confined space at the same time. Um, In addition to that, he was able to get the uh, post office to post um, uh, signs on the postal trucks, asking the public not to approach uh, postal delivery workers, which many times people see the mailman coming. They want to come and get the mail from them hand by hand to hand. uh, But that's unsafe. In the present condition, so even one member with a few supporters and the threat of job action was able to get uh, things changed. So one thing we can we can observe with all the uh, um, the unfolding wildcat strikes is that once you once the working class gets in the habit of going on strike, it's hard to stop, and that's something the bosses absolutely fear. Now. Um, We've seen wildcat strikes in some union places, but some of the places that I've mentioned are non-union. And you see uh, among non-union workplaces, there are many workers now who want to be organized and they are also taking action, like McDonald's, where I discussed before. There's also movements to organize workers at Whole Foods, at Amazon, which is basically the same company, um, also at Trader Joe's. And there was a, uh, an organized, uh, a, a union organizing movement among Delta flight attendants, which is also gaining steam in the present situation. Now, I will say this, wildcat strikes are good, but there are limits to what they can accomplish. You know, we have to understand the American capitalist class is a powerful enemy, and we should never underestimate them. The important question we have to ask ourselves as workers is how are we going to beat them how can they be beaten? And I don't think we can beat the American capitalist class with kind of a ragtag force. We can only beat the American uh, capitalist class if we have a unified and organized working class. Now, what I will say is this, when workers take action at a workplace, they need to elect a leadership. There has to be some sort of committee to come forward. Uh, and that leadership should, uh, should represent all the departments at that workplace all the different shifts everybody should be represented and in order to win you really need a majority of workers behind you and preferably you need as many of the workers as possible or all the workers if that's possible behind you to really be able to win and in addition to that that workplace needs to link up with other workers who work for the same company who work in the same industry and other workers in the general area now the international marxist tendency calls for the uh, establishment of health and safety committees to be formed at the workplaces. And that those committees could be the beginning of, of a uh, general staff, so to speak, to lead the workers into action. Um, we call for that wherever uh, workers at their workplace are able to get enough people to support that idea, that should take place. And those committees could, could guide the, the workforce forward. They can be the uh, first line of defense to make sure that everybody is protected at the workplace. Um, in in the midst of the uh, in, in the midst of the COVID nineteen health crisis, but not only at the workplace, because we could define the question of health and safety in a broad manner that not only includes the workplace but includes um, uh, from the from the point you leave your place uh, of residence to the time you get to work and back. You know, so you should have a very broad understanding of health and safety. Now, in order to um, to, to win against the capitalist class, as we've explained. We do need organization, we need to build up new leaders at the workplace from among the workers, and these workers, these new leaders, are gonna need clear ideas and clear perspectives on how to beat the bosses. And we think that means they need the ideas of Marxism. Now, I will say this, um, if you, uh, I, I'll, I'll discuss the de- more details on, uh, about Marxism a little bit later, but this is one of the best kept secrets in the United States. And that is, did you know that a good part of the unions in the United States, a good part of the unions that exist today, were built by socialists, communists, and Marxists? Did you know that? I'll give you a few examples. Take a look at the Teamsters Union. The Teamsters Union used to be a small union of truck drivers. But in the 1930s, particularly with the Minneapolis general strike in 1934 and the aftermath from that, Marxists who went into the unions, who were were leading um, uh, workers in those unions, they were able to transform the Teamsters Union from being a small truck drivers union into a broad, big, powerful industrial union. You also have a union like the United Auto Workers Union, which today is still one of the strongest and one of the most potentially powerful unions in the country. The UAW was built by socialists, communists, right? People who were willing to challenge private property. That union was built. Because they had a sit-down strike, basically a plant occupation of Flint, Michigan. That's how that union was built, you know. And, and, and uh, that's another example of how the left really transformed uh, the labor movement in this country. But I'll even give you another example. Um, if anyone knows who Sam Gompers is, Samuel Gompers was the first leader of the American Federation of Labor. Even he started out as a socialist. He even had some correspondence with Frederick Engels, which is Karl Marx's. Uh, collaborator. Now, the present labor leadership in the United States is not socialist, is not communist. Um, and they, the, in, in my opinion, if you look at the results of what they've uh, accomplished in the past period, they are a failure. Their policies certainly have been a failure. Um, and they're a particular failure in a crisis that we see unfolding in front of our eyes. I just wanted to read this um, interesting post Um, This was posted on March 10th on the AFL-CIO website. Um, It was referring to Monday, March 9th, which is the day the stock market fell 7%. And this is what it said on the AFL-CIO website. If Monday morning tells us anything, it's that we need that leadership now. Because once fear becomes contagious, it may be the hardest thing to stop. Now, they were saying that the the AFL-CIO is saying that leadership is needed. We could not agree more. The AFL-CIO is the leadership of the working class. Are they providing the leadership that the working class needs right now? What did they suggest in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis? Well, they this is one of the things they put on their website. They said, call on your U.S. senator to support H.R. 6201, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. That was what they argued needed to be done by the working class to defend itself in the midst of this crisis nothing about stopping going to work if you're working in a dangerous condition shutting down protect- nothing like that right no argument and uh that that non-essential workers should go home and be fully paid essential workers should be paid uh double time basically hazard pay in the, in those conditions plus be provided with immediate health and safety um uh, 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 protection no nothing like that they say call your congressman. Now, do you trust Congress to change things? Do you trust the president to change things? According to approval ratings for the U.S. Congress right now, Congress has an approval rating of only 22%. That means almost 80% of the population in the United States does not trust Congress. But apparently in that 22%, the AFL-CIO leadership counts itself as being one of those uh, forces that puts a lot of trust in them. We are not going to protect ourselves by waiting for legislation to pass Congress and waiting for a government inspector to come to your workplace. We need protection now. That means workers have to form these health and safety committees and have to take action when necessary. Now, if it was just that, we might give the FSAO leadership a pass, but it's not just that. We've been seeing their policies over the decades. And where has that landed uh, the American worker in this situation? Um, just to give an example, um, if you look uh, at, at um, the, the facts in, in, in the situation, labor's share of national income is down 6.7% since the middle 1980s. Over the past three decades, the top 1% grew their net worth by 21 trillion, while the bottom 50% saw their net worth decrease by 900 billion. Now, that's occurred over three decades of time. That's, by the way, not just Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a horrible enemy of the working class, but it's not just him. It's other presidents, it's other Congresses, it's the Democrats and the Republicans together. And yet the labor leadership during this whole period of time was saying that the Democrats would save us, the Democrats would protect us. But the facts show that that's not happening. The the trade union leadership basically has um, this idea that class collaboration, that is workers, working with the boss, that will make things better for the working class. That's been the policy of the AFL-CIO since before Richard Trumka became part of the leadership team there. But he's been there since 1995. He was part of the John Sweeney team to try to transform the AFL-CIO. And then he later became the head of the AFL-CIO later uh, after that. What has been their, their, their uh, results of their policies? We saw some of the facts that I just gave you, I think, show some of the results of their policy. But on top of that, let's look at what percentage of the labor force is unionized. In 1983, in the United States, 20.1% of the labor force was unionized. In 2019, it's only 10.3% of the labor force is unionized. So it's been cut in half during that whole period. By the way... If you want to say, well, what was the percentage of the labor force unionized when Trump became part of the leadership team at the AFL-CIO? That was in 1995. The labor force was 14.9%, almost 15% of the labor force was unionized. So it's gone down from 15% to 10% over that period. And that's 25 years, a quarter of a century. And, and, and in addition to seeing labor go down as a percentage of the labor force that's organized, if you're a union worker, look at your contract. Many contracts, the new contracts, are worse than the old contracts. They give up things. They give up things that we fought for in the past. They, they make many concessions, particularly for the new people. There's all kinds of multi-tiered workforces where new workers coming in get paid a lot less than the other workers who already work there. It's, it's a real travesty, and it shows a bad direction for labor. Now, what we've seen with these wildcats is that people are trying to get around the obstacle of the union leadership. Um, But the question is, is what does this movement uh, need need in order to be victorious? I mean, one thing that this movement has to understand is that capitalism has centralized power. And if you're going to take on centralized power, workers need to be organized everywhere. We have to, uh, we're fighting these interlocking, huge corporations and banks the top 500 corporations and banks, by the way, alone, just the top 500 corporations bank, control two-thirds of the U.S. economy. So if we get the, take a look at, at the Trader Joe's workers, of which there is talk of unionizing Trader Joe's, look at what they're up against. Trader Joe's is a huge corporation. It's owned by a, a, a company called Aldi Sud. And Aldi Sood, um owns not only all the Trader Joe's uh, stores in the United States, but they also own... Uh, stores that they have around the world. Um, in the United States alone, there's something like over 500 Trader Joe's stores in 46 states, and they employ about 48,000 employees. Now, in one of the recent periods, you know, the, the merchant capitalists, the retail capital, the grocer, the ones who sell, sell food, they've been making a lot of profit off this COVID-19 situation. In one California Trader Joe's store, the store took in $6 million, right? And then it gave a, uh, a little uh, uh, bonus to its workers, and you know, to all the different crew members. And it gave them uh, a total—if you total out what they gave each an individual, each individual worker—a total of forty-three thousand dollars. So that means less than one percent of the money that they raked in, they gave to the workers. But they wouldn't have been able to rake in any of that money without the workers. Remember that. Now. Um, if we're going to take on a store like Trader Joe's, a chain like Trader Joe's, or you're going to take on something like Amazon, Whole Foods, you can't go store by store. You can't go warehouse by warehouse. That won't survive. That strategy won't win. And that's why I would argue that unions, if we're going to build up powerful unions in the next period, if we're going to make unions into fighting organizations, the unions have to be armed with Marxist ideas and a Marxist perspective. Now, A union armed with Marxism means that we understand that workers' interests and the interests of the bosses are totally opposed to one another. It's not about class collaboration, it's about class struggle. The class struggle exists whether you recognize it or not, so you better recognize it, otherwise you'll be blindsided. We also have to understand that the laws that are made on the national level, on the state level, on the local level, these laws are based... And defend the interests of the capitalist class. The state apparatus is there to defend the capitalist class. All of their restrictions, all of their their, their um, you know their their regulatory agencies are done to benefit the capitalist class at the expense of the working class. That includes the National Labor Relations Board, for example. And we understand that the centralized power of capital. If you're going to fight it and you're going to win it, you need a unified mass working class to counter that. Now. If you have unions without a Marxist perspective, which is pretty much the way the unions are now with the present leadership, you have a a group of leaders who accept the limitations of capitalism when they try to unionize a a new workforce, when they try to organize a new workforce, they go by labor law. They let labor law dictate who can be in the bargaining unit and who can't be in the bargaining unit. They wait for the National Labor Relations Board to schedule an election. Usually the capitalists can delay those elections, keep delaying over and over again. Eventually the union, pro-union workers are gone. They bring in not, uh, people who maybe don't really know the situation or anti-union, and they're able to win and beat the union at that election. Or even if they are able eventually to have a union election and the workers vote in uh, the union, they can the, the union uh, leadership generally does these store-by-store campaigns, which means the workers don't really have much leverage in negotiation. And the store-by-store store campaign uh, can be a disaster in many ways because you remember Walmart a number of years ago, there was one store in the province of Quebec in Canada, one Walmart store that unionized. And what did Walmart do? They just shut the store down. So they kept all the Walmart stores non-union because they just sacrificed the store that voted union. So a store-by-store store campaign, a warehouse-by-warehouse warehouse campaign, these are th- these will not beat these giant monopolies in these giant corporations. The union leadership that accepts, accepts the limits of capitalism will ultimately uh, create a situation where you see the results, a reduction in the percentage of the labor force that's unionized, weakness in terms of collective bargaining, and the workers are forced to accept givebacks, more and more givebacks. Now, if you have unions with a revolutionary leadership, um, that can transform things that can change things. So we would say that what the kind of unions we need are going to organize workers to fight back and then to take power to transform society. It has to be unions with a leadership that adopts adopts a Marxist program and perspective. We need to link up Marxists and activists open to Marxism and with people who are not activists who who are not activists before but who want to do something now. We need to link up with them both union workers and those who are unorganized, we want them to link up with us today to build a stronger force for the working class. Now, I would also add one more thing is the labor movement, the working class has to also take into account the question of politics. Now, when we talk about politics, um, you know, we, we see that the workers are in the factory, in the store, in the warehouse, at whatever workplace, they're battling the boss on the workplace. They may have to battle the, the boss on the streets, like if they're on strike. But then when it comes time to election, where do they go? They go to vote and they vote for one of the uh, boss's political parties. We must fight against the bosses politically as well as at the workplace. We need our own work our own party. The working class needs our own uh, needs its own party. The labor leaders, we would argue, should articulate a program for the working class. By the way, if you're interested, you go to socialistrevolution.org, go to our program, and we have a special program to fight the COVID nineteen crisis and the present economic crisis that we're in. Now, if you, if the labor leaders took up that program and they uh, um, uh, made people made it known among the public, this is what the working class is demanding. This could create the basis for running labor candidates in November. Right. And we would ta- tackle all of the issues facing the working class. For example, let's take, take a look at the airline in- industry right now. If you take a look at the airline in- industry, we agree. We want to protect all the jobs in the airline industry, all the wages, all the health care of those workers and the pensions. We want that all protected. But what we, uh, w- well, the way we would protect that is through nationalization of the airline companies under Democratic Workers Control and Management. But what we are against is we are against bailing out the owners of the airlines and their CEOs. That we're against. Labor should expose those dirty deals in Washington where the workers are being taxed to bail out the rich. You can protect those jobs. You can protect those pensions. You can protect the health care of the workers. We don't need to bail out the capitalists in, 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 in their failures. Now, what is to be done in the next period? The labor leaders are resigned to support the horrible status quo. Even Bernie Sanders, we saw, ended his campaign. And he said he's going to support Joe Biden. Now, by supporting Joe Biden, um, we're, we're seeing, you know, he's forgetting that there was eight years of the Democratic Party in the White House that led to Trump, right? Um, he's also, Bernie is forgetting that from 1977 through 1980, From 1993 and 1994, from 2009 and 2010, in all those years, the Democrats had control of the White House and both houses of Congress. What did the Democrats do in power? Was that a workers' government? Were they transforming society in, in favor of the working class? They certainly were not. The Democrats have been part and parcel of all the damage that's been done, the big picture damage that's been done against the working class. Like I mentioned that fact before about how the polarization of wealth is occurring in this country. So we know that there's no way forward to supporting the Democrats. There needs to be another party, a party of the working class bill. But if you're a serious person, you know it's going to be a long, hard struggle. Um, It's one that we can win because the working class potentially has more power than it's ever had. The working class is larger in the United States and worldwide than it's ever been. The working class controls production. Nothing is constructed, nothing is made, nothing is transported without the working class doing that. The working class, ultimately, when it's conscious of itself and conscious of its power, can transform society. Um, the, the, The present situation, the future, is creating huge changes in consciousness. People are starting to see themselves from a class point of view and the potential power the class has. But to win, the workers are gonna need leadership. Now the international Marxist tendency, we are building that revolutionary leadership and we're building it based on the ideas of Marxism. We're, We're trying to establish a network of workers in every factory, warehouse, store, office, bus and train depot, post office, campus, working class neighborhood. The IMT is growing now. We're building this network, but we need your help. The bigger we are, the more we can do. And you could be part of a growing organization. Contact us if you're interested in finding out more. I'm going to end on what Marx and Engels wrote back in 1848. Workers of the world, unite.